even in the church. We are inclined to think that it's either cocaine or whiskey or horse racing or something along the lines, but I want to cast a far wider net this morning. Galatians 5 starts by saying, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul is speaking to a church in Galatians that, and he's conscious of the fact that there are things that, me, that we may have done before we were saved that have a habit of dragging us and sucking us back even though we're saved, even though that we have been forgiven, even though we're walking with Christ. There are things that can drag us back to an old lifestyle that we left behind. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why are we talking about this from the pulpit? Two reasons. Number one is that it's not talked about from the pulpit very often, and that we should be doing that. We can be bad at dealing with it, marginalizing it, condemning it, but not very good at dealing with it. Second reason is because sin is never private. So often you'll hear people say, well, look, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm I'm not doing anyone any harm. Sure, it's only money, it's, only, it's me, it's my body, it's my life. But the reality is that sin is never private. It always affects other people emotionally. It affects other people physically. It can affect people spiritually. How I behave, how I treat others, how I think about myself, how I think about my body impacts other people, especially the people closest to me. They'll impact my wife, it'll impact my children, it'll impact my parents, it'll impact my neighbors. Life is not lived in isolation. Albert Einstein allegedly claimed insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And though he was talking about science, what if we were to apply that to our own life? What do you repeat over and over and over again and are expecting different results? Perhaps for some, it'll be, well, just one more drink. For others, it might be, look, just one more hit, and then that's me, I'm done. Or, look, one more look at at those websites, one more shopping trip, or or just steal a wee bit more money. For others, it it might just be one more uh, binge meal. Addictions have lots of different colors, lots of different flavors, but that repetitive, ongoing cycle is still there. Now, the Bible doesn't ha- have the word addiction in it unless you have an old King James Bible. And if you have a King Jimmy with you, you'll find it once used in a positive sense. Uh, Paul writes about a family addicted to serving God in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, the household of Stephanus. But what I'm interested in talking about this morning uh, uh, is... and. If you are in church this morning and you have habits well and truly formed that are dictating to you what your priorities are, rather than you mastering your body and disciplining your body and dictating to them what your priorities are, I wonder if there's something that you just can't live without. Now, for some, yes, it can be smoking and drinking and gambling, you know, the traditional uh, trilogy. For others, It could be social media addiction. You're addicted to Facebook. You're addicted to Instagram. And that's not just the young ones, okay? Some of the most guilty ones who are addicted are older generations. Maybe it's you're addicted to spending. You're a shopaholic. 
So here's how I want to deal with this this morning, okay? I want to give you an Old Testament example. I then want to give you a modern explanation, and then we'll finish with a Christ-centered expectation, okay? So example, explanation, expectation. Those are your three hands if you're taking notes, and all good Christians take notes. Okay, so example. Uh, Turn with me to Genesis 25. It's a huge chapter in terms of everything that's going on, And what we're reading would maybe seem a wee bit strange to focus on. It seems very small compared to the bigger issues in in Genesis 25. But it has ramifications in one sense. That it's this vivid picture, I think, of an addiction. Certainly one that we might face here in the church. For a while, we may not think that the thing that we can't live without, the thing that rotates, uh, everything rotates around in our lives, isn't a bad thing or isn't a big deal unforeseen ramifications whose life is not lived in isolation to me that really sums up what an addiction is so in chapter 25 we read about isaac's sons being born and that's where our interest in the story kicks in so verse 24 when her days to give birth were completed behold there were twins in her womb the first came out red all his body like a hairy cloak and so they called his name esau which basically means red one he's the red guy ginger all right um Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so twins. One is slightly older by just minutes, but that's significant. Because the law was that the firstborn son was entitled to special honor and special privilege. So whenever um, their parents would die, the land would be divided into three sections. The oldest Esau would get two portions. Jacob would get one. He would get a double portion. That was his birthright. So Isaac's land would be um, split up in that way. Both boys, though, are very different. Esau takes after his dad. Rough and ready, a skillful man, a, 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 a man of the world, a man of the people, a hunter. Jacob, he's more sophisticated, cultured, classy, intellectual, refined, the way his mother would like the men in her life to be. So once Jacob, then this refined man about town, was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Excuse me. So he says, I'm about to die. I'm famished. I'm starving. You can have the birthright if you just give me some of that stew. Now, regardless of where you want to assign blame for all this, if you want to blame Esau for being rash, or if you want to blame Jacob for exploiting his brother's rashness, it's fair to say that this is a strange deal to make. I'll give you my birthright, my my entitlement to a double portion of everything that's going on, my entitlement to God's blessing on my life for broth. It's not a good deal, but God considers it binding. But it's almost like the behavior of an addict. 
I don't care what it costs. I, I need that fix. I need that thing right now. I, I, I don't care what, what, what that, that it does to my family by selling the birthright. I need that relief. I don't care what it does to relationships. I don't care what God thinks about this deal. I need my fix. I need that soup. Or stew. Now, you could put any addiction in there and it would read the same. I, I don't care what God thinks. I need this drink. I, I don't care what it does to my family. I, I need to look at this adult website again. I don't care what, what people are thinking. I can't live without checking Instagram. So if I ignore my friends, if I ignore my family, and you see it so often, don't you? Whenever you've got people and they're all in the same room, but all of them are just like this. I don't care about the people around me. I, 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 I've got a better priority. I've got my focus somewhere else. I don't care if we can't afford it. I'll put it on the credit card. Esau made a deal to meet his cravings right there and then. This, that soup, I'm sure, tasted really good until the last spoonful went in his mouth. And the reality of what he had done starts to creep in. He gave up something of infinite value, something that would have guaranteed all the soup that he had ever wanted. But he gave it up for instant gratification. Now, talk to an addict. Talk about needing the fix, whatever it happens to be. Because if they don't get it, they get in bad form, headaches, obsessive. They need that instant gratification. They'll do whatever they have to do to get it, and they'll steal money from their mom's purse, or they'll steal from the, their work, they'll, they'll jeopardize their job, or they'll jeopardize their marriage, because that's the nature of addiction. And that's really at the heart of addiction, I think, that losing the ability to see what you are losing because you're so focused on instant gratification. And you sacrifice the long term for the short term. For the truth of it is that there is no addiction ever totally lost. There's no addiction that is totally in control. But what happens is that in that addiction, we lose sight of the true value of things that we're sacrificing in order to have the quick fix. I think it was John Piper was reading, and he used extreme examples to prove this point. He says, you know, if a terrorist from ISIS came in, uh, just as you're about to log on to the computer or, or, or to take that drink, and he has his, your wife or your husband or, or your children, uh, and he says, if you make those purchases, if you take that drink, if you look at that website, if you do that, I will kill your family in front of you. The, the logic would say that in that moment, you'd have the ability to control your urge when they're standing right there in front of you. Or perhaps if I came in at that same moment, you know, in, instead of, of the terrorist, um, and gave you a briefcase of one million pounds cash tax-free and says, if I stand here, I will give you the briefcase at the end of the day if you can resist that urge to drink, if you can resist that urge to, to, to uh, do whatever it is that you're addicted to. It says, can you stay off your phone for the rest of the day if I give you this briefcase? Can you... Re re Put down the credit card if I give you this briefcase. In those moments, 99% of people will be able to resist the urge. The truth is that so often we are not so totally unable to resist the urges. 
what we lack is the ability to see the things that we are sacrificing in those moments. Because when it's a physical threat to your family, we'll think more about it. But the reality is that we risk losing our families anyway by going down that road. It's the blinding power of addiction. Esau gave up his spiritual inheritance for soup. What is it that you're sacrificing when you allow your addiction to get the better of you? Proverbs 6, verse 27, it's a brilliant verse. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? It says, guys, you're playing with fire. When you play with fire, you get burned. It's costing you something. You maybe haven't had to pay the piper yet, but I read someone, someone said this week, um, free cheese is always available in most traps. says, you think you're getting a good deal, but it's deadly. It's going to cost. Now, that's the example. Let me get to the explanation now. This guy is Simon Sinek. I found him really helpful in this part of it, and so I just want to give him a bit of credit. Um, he's not a Christian man, but I found that he endorses a lot of Christian um, or at least a lot of spiritual truths. I don't think he understands that he's endorsing a lot of spiritual truths, but he is, uh, he is, for lack of a better word, a motivational speaker for large corporate leadership events. And a lot of his stuff is available online. I find him fascinating. I find his insights fascinating. And I would recommend even just looking up some of his stuff. But he highlights a number of things that are going on and are going to be big issues for the generation that are now in, in their late teens, 20s and possibly even up to early 30s. Uh, the first is that they're a product of field parenting strategies. That's not my words. Those aren't his words. Those are the words of this generation who have been parented. The idea of being told you're so special, you can be anything you want to be, if you dream big, it will happen. If you believe and your heart is true, it will happen. It's flawed because the truth is that after they get the grades because their mommy verbally beat the teacher into submission, they leave school with grades that they didn't earn and participation trophies for coming last. And the science, the science is telling us that this has resulted in a generation of people who should be full of optimism in their 20s but are now demonstrably more depressed and have lower self-esteem because they've gone into the big bad world and realized that they're not more special than everyone else. Dreams don't just come true because you wish that they did and people don't allow you to get the trophy just because you participated. And so what we have is a generation of people coming through with really low self-esteem because everything that they told they were, they're realizing that they're not. That the world doesn't quite work that way. And what happens is, though, this is magnified by our impatience. You want something? Amazon. It'll be there tomorrow. Whatever you want, it'll be there tomorrow. They'll get it to you. <laughs> why, why wait around like an idiot when it can be handed to you? You want to watch a program? We don't have to wait for next week when the next episode comes. Stream it. And in fact, binge watch the entire series in two, three days. Talk to some of the students who should have been revising over the summer, okay? All right? And tell them, you know, say, okay, that 20-episode that series, 
oh yeah, knocked out in three days. You know, whereas it took, it took us a whole season, you know, of watching from Christmas to Easter to, to see it on TV. You know, my girls can't understand why I watch adverts on TV. They say, why don't you, why don't you just skip them? Because it doesn't work like that on the TV. Like, it just doesn't fizz them. Impatience, we, we can't even do that whole awkward thing whenever we're, we're meeting um, someone who we're interested in to date. You know that kind of awkward? And then they say the thing that you're not supposed to say, and then you do, and, and you're trying to, oh, is that, does that mean that they're interested? Does that mean, and, and, and you're trying to figure it out. Now, you swipe right, because there's an app, and it's easy. You meet someone that night, you meet someone that weekend. There's an app for it. And so what happens is we are impatient. We don't want to wait the things. There's no shortcut, though, to deep relationships. There's no shortcut to building a life and building a home. People will will get married and they'll put everything on the credit card because they want to live in a house like their parents and they want to live in a house like their parents and they want to have a lifestyle like their parents, but they don't realize that it's taken their parents 25, 30 years to get to that point. Impatient. Not ready. Low self-esteem. We're not equipped. But the big issue facing this generation is technology. Whenever your phone beeps, you get a message, you get an email, you get a notification, you get tagged in in something on Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, there's a chemical release in our brains called dopamine. Now, it's this chemical in our brains that triggers that feeling of happiness. (gasps) Someone's ringing me. Oh, I wonder who it could be. And you know whenever you're maybe sitting and and you're having dinner and and your phone goes, and even though you're in the middle of a conversation, you still feel the need to go, oh, okay. And, and, you know, you you put it back down again, but it's that, oh, that's the dopamine. It's that reaction. It's the same chemical that's released whenever we drink, whenever we gamble, whenever we smoke. In other words, dopamine is a highly, highly addictive chemical in our bodies. It's why there are age restrictions on alcohol, age restrictions on uh, smoking, age restrictions on gambling, but we have not yet put restrictions on social media, which means there's a generation growing up that have free access to this addictive, numbing drug as they go through a really stressful time in their lives called adolescence. And I think it was Sinek that says, it's like saying to your 14-year-old teenager, well, if you're stressed, there's the drinking cabinet. Knock yourself out because I know you're stressed. Because it's that coping mechanism of having that dopamine effect. See, most people addict, get, who get addicted to alcohol and various drugs, whatever it is, not all, but most have their first introduction to those, their first exposure to those in their teenage years because they're going through adolescence, it's stressful, and they're looking for ways to cope. They're looking for releases, and that dopamine is part of the reaction. Now, we're supposed to be transitioning from being children to adults, which means we're transitioning from looking to see, get approval from our mom and dad and and living through them, to then forming our own friendship circles and getting our dependence in, in around them. What happens then is that 
instead of maybe finding deep friendships, some people find dopamine. And instead of turning to people to talk to, they turn to the bottle. Or they'll turn to a computer screen. Or they'll turn to drugs to get that numbing hit. Now, because of social media, what we are seeing is that, and this is coming from studies from, from this generation, is that we have a group of young adults now who are struggling to develop deep and meaningful friendships. Which to me is just saying, well, the church is just more important than ever. Getting physically to church is more important than ever. Because yes, people have got hundreds of friends on Facebook, but most people, if they're being honest, will admit that they're not really friends. They'll not turn to them and look for advice if something really problematic is coming. It's superficial. Yes, they'll, they'll, they'll share jokes and they'll share photos and they'll comment and, and they'll tag and they'll do different things. But the reality is that they'll rarely meet face to face. And even when they do, they don't want to talk about problems because they know that most of their friends on Facebook would drop them and cancel their plans if they got a better offer somewhere else. Which means we have a generation that is scientifically suffering from low self-esteem have been taught to be impatient, and yet on top of this, lack the social skills to reach out to people for help and are forming addictive habits in their teenage years. The science is telling us that the more you spend on social media, the more time you spend on social media, the more likely you are to suffer from depression in older age. Because it looks like everyone else has got it all sorted out. It's a cycle of not having the coping mechanisms and then, turn and then turning to things that just leave us depressed. And it's a cycle of being depressed, going to things that aren't satisfying, then getting more depressed, and so trying to find things. And it's a cycle of trying to reach out and find something that's satisfying. And so we're talking about addictions because I think our society is desperately in need of an intervention. So let's turn then to a Christ-centered expectation. Look, chapter 4. Uh, Jesus has just been um, up on the, the wilderness being tempted uh, at the start of chapter 4. And then he, he's beginning his, his ministry, uh, going around different places speaking. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus has been tempted. He's beginning this ministry and he is handed the scroll from Isaiah 61 and he reads it. And his sermon is basically nine words. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I bet you all wish you had a nine word sermon this morning, right? But it doesn't happen, I'm afraid. Um, now look carefully here at verse 18. Um, a little more carefully, you notice that his eyes in the scripture in the audience, he, he says, okay, that the, these people are poor, they're brokenhearted, they're captive, they're blind, they're oppressed. 
That describes us, all of us, okay? All of us. None of us come out perfect. We are all born flawed. And I know all our parents said that we're the best. And I know our mommy said that we're a little blue-eyed boy or brown-eyed boy or whatever it happens to be for you. All they had to do was wait. And we proved them wrong, right? All we had to do was wait. And they discovered that we are not perfect. They began to realize, oh, they're perfect. Oh, no, wait, they get that from their mother. Oh, no way, don't you blame that on me. She's getting that from you. And they have this bend, and they have this tendency, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're just like me too. No, they're like you. Right? That's part of the nature of having children, letting them grow up. And as the years go on, even as you make these discoveries about yourself, and society pressures us, so this inborn tendencies, they work together. We realize how flawed we are, and we're trying to cope. We're trying to find these mechanisms, and some find this pull so difficult, and, and they find themselves being drawn towards these life-afflicting, life-dominating sins. Addictions. Maybe Hebrews, you would see, call them besetting sins. Hebrews 12 says, these sins which so easily beset us and snare us and tangle us. It's not the worst way of describing an addiction. Now, Jesus has a special message for such people. Number one, Jesus says, I've got good news for addicts. Notice that he has come to preach the gospel, right? You know what the gospel means, right? Good news. The word gospel means good news. Now, Christians need to remember that the message ought to be given with joy. Ben was talking about joy going beyond our circumstances. That's the gospel. And boy, do some people seem to manage to make it to sound like bad news. Ah, oh, you ought to become a Christian. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I'm so happy to have Jesus in my life. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're going to hell. Ah, no, 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 no. It's good news. It's good news. We should be happy. It's glad news. Not right. Not what the angels said at Bethlehem. Unto you is born, uh, we bear uh, glad tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's good news. It should make us smile when we think about what Christ has done. See, the world has messages of bad news for people all the time. We were born this way. You'll never change. What identifies you defines you, and your addiction will always define you. This is who you are. We need to give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that gospel? The gospel, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is very simple. The message that Jesus came, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and he did it for you. That's the gospel. Let me give you the gospel in four words. Christ died for you. That's the gospel. Four words. And it's good news. And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. There's that word captive. 
all right, it, it's like prisoners of war. You've been taken hostage against your will. And he says, I have come to proclaim liberty to those prisoners of war. I've come to claim freedom to those who are found themselves bound and chained and unable to escape. And for those who've been barraged by the enemy this week, and you feel yourself pinned down, you feel yourself surrounded, you feel that you're about to be taken captive, Jesus says, I've got good news because I'm here to proclaim liberty. I was reading this week the story of a, an ex-addict. Now, his name was given as Tom. It wasn't his real name. But his story, in a nutshell, is like this. He grew up uh, and uh, said he was abused by his maternal grandmother. Now, that would tweak anybody. And by 12... He was drinking alcohol and was addicted. And then by the time he was a late teenager, uh, he was addicted to heavy drugs. Uh, he was 16 and in a car. And uh, somebody in the car, uh, I don't know who it was, but they turned to him and said, listen, Tom, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I feel like I need to tell you that Jesus loves you. Now, his reaction was, um, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Where's this come from? He says, listen, I just need you to know that Jesus loves you. And Tom would go on to say, you know, that irritated me. It got under my skin. I didn't like that. But the message was so simple and yet so profound. Jesus loves an addict. He loves me. No way. No, he loves me. And he said that those words were a seed that began to break down an angry and hardened heart. So listen, Jesus has good news for the addict. He has got good news for those whose life is being dictated by other things. I have come to preach good news that I've come to give liberty to the captive. Something else, not only does he have good news for the addict, but Jesus has a good plan for the addict. Let's go back to verse 18. Two phrases, because it's an important relationship. It's not just to preach liberty, but then to set at liberty. To proclaim liberty is to speak, to preach, to share this message and say, look, I've got a message that's going to give you liberty. To set at liberty means I'm actually going to do that. I'm going to make those words come into fruition. I'm going to set you free, not just tell you about freedom. And how does he do that? Well, I've seen him, and it's rare, I admit, but whenever you are, have an addiction, I have seen people who have asked Christ into their hearts, they've responded to the gospel, and he takes away those desires instantly. I've seen it happen. Praise God for that. He just removes it. I, I'm sure we wish that he would just take away all our sinful desires, right? That those would just disappear when he got saved. That would be great. But I've seen people who have had these addictions and they have just had it stripped from them. I applaud that. I rejoice in that. It's miraculous. It's wonderful. But it, it is not the norm. It's not the norm. Usually the way God works in the hearts of those who are addicted is supernaturally naturally. In other words, he does supernatural work through natural processes. Look at a lot of the time in the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel were told, look, you're going to be given the victory in this battle. You're going to be given the victory here. You're going to be given the victory here. But what God still expected them to do was to put boots on the ground. 
they still had to go fight. They still had to go fight and to claim that victory, to claim that freedom that God had promised them. And yet they fought with a godly expectation. We believe that because God has said it, if we pursue it, he will, del- he will be faithful. And so what can we do on our part? What can we do knowing that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Well, picture then a square, okay? The first side to it is going to be called accurate assessment. You need to make an accurate assessment of where you are in your life and the things that are dominating and influencing your life. So often, this is where people feel right at the very start. And people say, look, it's not really a big deal. I, I, I watch those things online sometimes, but you know, I can stop whenever I want. I know my spending habits are out of form, but I can stop whenever I want. It's not a big deal. Just placing a few bets here and there. It's okay. I, I, no. Make an accurate assessment. Don't underestimate the power of your addiction. An addiction is not a typical challenge that people go through. It's heavy. It is hard. It's a struggle of a lifetime often. In fact, there will probably never be a greater challenge in your entire life than this particular challenge. Other problems will pale in comparison. You need to make an accurate assessment. A smoker, for example, will notice that any time they try and give up, there is all this drama that comes into their life. And um, what will very often happen then is, is that they'll say, oh, it's too hard, there's too much going on, I'll put it back and I'll stop a wee bit later, or I just need this cigarette to calm me down or to get the focus, or I need a drink to help me focus and just to calm myself down. And you find the comfort in it because there's so many other things flaring up. Now, are other things flaring up? Very often, what you find is that the timing is such that not that things are getting extra hectic or extra stressful, but your body is fooling you. Your addiction is fooling you. It's your body trying to trick you to get that fix that it so desperately craves. Let's draw a second side to it. Once we make an accurate assessment, then the next step is overwhelming force. If it takes 200 soldiers to storm a base, bring 800, okay? Don't leave anything to chance. Don't try to do just enough. Use overwhelming force. Make sure you get the job done. Heard about a friend of a friend who struggled for years with addictions, heavy, heavy class A drugs. And I was talking to him this week about what I was speaking on this morning, and he says, you know, what the addict said to him was, you've got to change your playground and who you play with. He says, you can't stay anywhere near the same place. You can't stay in the same social circles. You can't stay in the same environment. You have to be ruthless. Use overwhelming force and get as many people around you as will support you and get on a new playground, as it were. Get new people to play with. Use overwhelming force. Third line, zero tolerance. You see, recovery is pass or fail. You don't get to say, well, you know, I was 75% sober this week, or, you know, know, I got got it down to 